0: Welcome to the Gamers Over 50 Podcast, Episode 10, Part 2, Holiday Games of 2019. I do know that this podcast is being recorded in 2020. I apologize. I got a little bit ill. And you probably didn't want to hear my voice when I was sick, so I decided to wait till I sounded better. Uh, again, we talked about holidays, talked about games around the holidays last time. This time we're going to talk about games I got for Christmas because that's awesome. You want to find out what I got for Christmas, right? Now, it, it, these are some more cool games they're playing. There's actually a couple of really neat categories in these games. Um, but I also want to explain why I talk about games for Christmas is because for Christmas, I buy my children at least one game. I do the same thing on the birthdays as well. But we definitely get a game and something fun and new that we can play, something that they'll, you know, enjoy. And they also buy us games. So that's that's kind of a fun thing. And so, you know, this year you might have heard that we had bought a Switch. And so one of the games was in there. Uh, additionally, for the holiday, we did buy six board dice or card games in there. And then a few video games, mainly some party games, racing game, and then the other game we're going to talk about today. Um, I also did give games for Christmas, and I, I talked about Age of War in a previous podcast, and it's an awesome dice game, easy to play. And bought three copies of it because it was just so good. I I knew people would enjoy it. So definitely going to have one of those friends still coming over. And they will hopefully not be listening to this podcast. Or now you know what you're getting for Christmas. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Anyways, these are the games I got for Christmas. The first one is Rick and Morty Risk. So that is a Risk version with Rick and Morty. And if you don't know who Rick and Morty is, I'm going to talk about them a little bit. I also received a Commodore 64 Mini. That had 64 games on it, and that was a huge excitement for me because I'm a big Commodore guy. And then finally, we got the Bass Pro Shops, the Strike for the Switch. That's right, we're now fishing on our Switch. I do want to start out, though, with Rick and Morty Risk, and I really want to start out with Risk. And I'm probably not going to give it as much justice as it deserves uh, because this you could spend an entire episode on the game of Risk. It's such a cool game. So, a little bit about Risk, and of course, some our good friends at Wikipedia are always helping us. Remember to donate to the folks over at Wikipedia, they are not doing it for free. But, you know, Risk was invented by a French film director, Albert Lamoris, and originally released in 1957. So, this is an old game. As, and again, I apologize to all our French viewers, La Conquête du Monde. Or the conquest of the world in France. It was bought by Parker Brothers and re-released in 1959 with some modifications to the rules, as Risk: The Continental Game. And then it was changed to Risk: The Game of Global Domination. So you can see we're very polite early on. Now we're not as polite. Um, but really, you know, the first following that introduction of that, the first new version of Risk was released in 1986 and it was called Castle Risk. And it featured a map depicting 18th century European castles instead of a map of the world. And sadly, it was a financial disappointment. I remember seeing Castle Risk. I remember trying to play Castle Risk. It wasn't as much fun as you think. Now, after that, it would be 15 more years before the company tried to release a new risk. And in 1993, the rules for secret mission risk which was a standard in Europe, were added to the United States edition. And after that, a limited edition in 1999 in France called Risk Edition Napoleon in commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the Napoleonic era, which existed from 1799 to 1815. So really starting in 2002, a lot of Risk versions were themed around franchises that were out there. And when I say franchises, I'm talking about the big franchises, of course. And we all know the, who the big franchises are. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Star Trek. Uh, let's see who else. I said Lord of the Rings. Oh, Transformers, which kind of was a weird one. But I guess you could see that on when they're fighting on Cybertron or something like that. Um, they also had a Risk Black Ops, which is kind of weird because there's a, you know, that was a, a limited run of a thousand copies as well as they had some other European maps. They had Risk 1959, so you could go back and play on a map that was from Risk 1959. They had a Halo version. And, of course, then they got into the the TV shows, The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Game of Thrones, and even so much into movies. Uh, Oh, and, sorry, Star Trek, of course. Can't forget Star Trek out there. Uh, they got into the movies, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they got into the Captain America Civil War, uh, some, and then the other video games and TV show, other cartoons, like, again, Rick and Morty, and uh, of those. Something that's kind of important to understand is Risk used to be one of those games that Monopoly players were like, well, that's a special, bigger, tougher game to play. Um, I was actually intimidated from Risk because I thought it had too many rules. It wasn't just rolling dice and going around the board. Um, but you know, around 16, a friend of mine's like, "Yeah, let's play Risk." I'm like, "Sure, I will try Risk." You know, and the gameplay of Risk, like I said, it was more than just rolling dice. You had to have strategy. Kind of had to think ahead. Uh, it does have a definitive chess advantage. You don't want you want to see what you're going to lose maybe in the next turn. Things like that. Now, one of the re- interesting pieces is in the official rule book of Risk, it recommends three basic strategy points for your play. And you should try to control an entire continent. And get the if you do that, you get bonus reinforcement armies. And you should watch the borders for buildings or armies that can imply an upcoming attack. Pretty simple. And you should build up armies on their own border for better defense. So you can see this is kind of a military strategy, but it's goes a little bit outside of military. It's more of, I don't want someone taking my pieces kind of thing. And the risk board is actually broken into a map. So you can take a look at a map such as, and we'll just use the current map right now in the current world. But if let's say we went 40 years back. We'd actually see the USSR or the United Soviet Socialist Republics. There would be countries that don't exist in risk today. In the map. So the cool thing about Risk is it's kind of grown up with the world. It is fun to play if you want to move into certain things. And, you know, really going into, you know, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, the Rick and Morty side of it and what Risk is kind of fun. Is that you can take a a fake world. And really, I can't pick on the Marvel one because I live in New York and stuff like that. But I can take a fake world of, say, uh, going into Game of Thrones. And taking a look at Game homes, or in Star Wars. And who knows? Maybe Star Wars is a real world. But you can take that and you can look at that world and take over certain parts of it. And, you know, there are certain places where maybe if I'm in Star Wars, hmm, I want to take over Tatooine because that's cool. And I can be like, "Oh, Luke Skywalker will work for me or something. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And, you know, the Rick and Morty thing is I actually cosplay as Rick. I can do a pretty good Rick voice. Hello, everybody. It's Rick. And you know, I like I like it. I have comic books of it. It's just kind of it's kind of a goofy thing. Um, And really, if you haven't ever heard of Rick and Morty, there you know this is a. It it may not be for everyone. There is a level of how it is silly and stupid and weird, and that is what makes it funny to me. It is again got some language in it. It has some weirdness in it. Uh, Definitely has a cult following. And what's kind of crazy is it's loosely based on. Back to the Future. And if you're listening well enough, there are a lot of celebrity voices. Uh, Susan Sarandon have been on it. Um, my, well, my favorite is John Oliver, and he plays Dr. Xenon Bloom. I don't think I can def my uh, being sick. I don't think I can do my John Oliver impression. So sorry about that. Or maybe I can. It's like, no, I can't. I'm just going to try it. But, um, you know, it's really a, it's kind of a fun show. And it has just, you know, one liners like there are in every one of those. So, you know, that was fun. Family thought, "Hey, he likes Rick and Morty, so let's get him a Rick and Morty game." I do have a lot of Simpsons Clue and other games like Life as well and Monopoly. Um, but really the reason why I was super excited and why I like Risk a lot is it's it's got it's like the game nerds favorite secret first girlfriend or first game that we really got into things and there's other games that are like that as well and nowadays there's so many games that we have but growing up when i was younger you know you had uh, monopoly and you had chutes and ladders and then you had risk and DD and there were so many rules that were brought into them and the strategy was you know but not as well based off luck so, you know, the battling all over the world was also another big piece. Um, some of my, my latent Bond villain tendencies come out when I play Risk. I uh, I make deals with people that don't usually seem to make it very well. But after we're done, I usually go and buy ice cream and make everybody happy when we play. Um, we have played a lot of Risk games. It used to be one of those games that could take a very long time when you were playing with four people or you're playing with someone well matched to you. Uh, I've actually thought about the opportunity of a very good friend of mine uh, who loves risk as much as I and seeing how long it would take for us to play a game if we can ever pull that amount of time together. Um, This person's also a geographer, so they would kind of make fun of it, make fun of me and my inability of understanding or or speaking certain country names you know, I really also enjoy the special versions because they're highlighted on something that has some lore attached to it. That's really kind of cool to see, you know, in the star Trek version, you could, you could basically take over Klingon territory or in the neutral zone as it is, uh, which, you know, the, the, again, like I said, playing risk, you know, and, and different things and doing fun voices with the Rick and Morty one will be fun for us. Um, The last thing I always think of, and I I make this joke because it was the first question I ever got in Trivial Pursuit, but it was about Nikita Khrushchev banging his shoe at the United Nations. And I always think that's kind of how I play Risk. It's all out. It's going after it. Um, You know, I'm not Russian or communist at all, but I just play with that level of zeal when I play. I want to win and I want to attack. So that was risk. That was really exciting, and we, we actually played two games. It was so much fun. The next one is actually kind of another cult hit, the Commodore 64 Mini. And if you've never heard of a Commodore 64, I'm going to teach you a little bit about computer history, but also video game history all in one, because this is kind of why video games had an opportunity to go off the Atari and off of the consoles and the cabinets that you see, out there and move on to the computer and then move on to the monitor and screens like that. Um, so the Commodore 64, again, good friends of Wikipedia are helping me. I'll give them my details. Uh, was introduced in January of 1982 and it actually holds a Guinness world record of the highest selling computer model of all time. So more versions of the Commodore 64 have been sold than any other computer. What's interesting is the Commodore 64 is from the 64 kilobytes of RAM. Now I said kilobytes, and my own personal, I have a gaming computer, has 64 gigabytes of RAM. So that's a thousand times more of the Commodore 64. But the Commodore 64 used all the 64 uh, kilobytes of RAM to make some really cool games. And it also dominated the home PC, small PC market, Wikipedia calls it the low end market. I don't agree because, you know, from 11 to 17, there was nothing low end about it. It was a computer. You could get it for less than $500. An Apple PC or an IBM PC were over a thousand easily. Uh, it had a ton of software that was available for it, and maybe during these, you know, late '70s, early '80s, people copied software from friend to friend. But you could also readily get the, the Commodore 64 because it was released not at the hobbyist store, not at the computer store, but you could go to like the retail store. And before we had WalMarts everywhere, there were uh, there were other stores that you could go to, or you could go to the mall and pick it up. And it was just. You know, plug it in and, and run with it. So, you know, it, it was, there's a great quote, and I'm going to mess up Leander Connie's name, but this is from 2003. And there was an article in PC Condinet, another against French. I apologize to the French people, France, and even the French Canadians. I apologize to you as well. But they had a great article, and it was called The Grandiose Price for a Modest PC. And in this it compared the ford model t to the commodore 64 because it brought technology to middle class households and it was a creative it, it the, the form factor was creative and it was a very affordable mass production which makes it very very cool now couple other cool facts about this is that there are 10,000 software titles built for Commodore 64s that people still run today. one the other neat thing was you know it was uh, it was available immediately out to the public. You didn't have to go to like a third party. I said this before but it was that's a big deal because I remember when my parents got us an Apple II and my mom got it through the school and we had to wait we knew it was coming. But like my friends went to the store and bought a Commodore 64. Um, and that was a lot of money at the time for us, but or you know, it was a gift for them uh for their parents. But you know, it it was a part of what's called the market wars in the 80s, and it offered discounts and trade-ins. And at the time, at the time, Timex (laughs) and Texas Instruments were computer companies, they sold PCs. And the Commodore 64 knocked them completely out of the the PC market. So they went back, and mind you, we have really good watches, and we got great calculators out of it. But it was Commodore 64 that ended their reign. A couple other very cool facts about it is that you could actually write code on the Commodore 64, and the Mini that was released, and... You can write code too. So I used to write basic when I was younger and it's you know the if, then, go to, go subs, all those types of things. If you've never written code um, and you wanna write code with it, there are great tutorials to write a quick basic program, including the old classic, hello world, where you hit a button and it says hello world. It, but very, very neat stuff is that this was a computer as well as a game system. You could do a lot of things with it. And if you really wanted to do some fun stuff and you had the peripherals to do it and a peripheral like you a know, modem and you know we've seen war games and stuff, those kind of things, is you could actually go out the bulletin bullet board systems. And a bulletin board was a precursor to the internet and it was kind of like you would log on nowadays and you log on to say like Facebook and you put something out there and other people comment. That's all it was, but it was very much slower. It was very, you know, clunky to add a new piece took a while to add it on. Last part about this was that you could add peripherals to the Commodore 64. So I'm talking joysticks, keyboards, light pens, mice, printers, disk drives, laser disk drives, cassette players to load games. In fact, one of the things in the UK was they had a lot of cassette player tapes, and that's kind of what slowed down the Commodore 64 a little bit. And when I say disc drives, I mean like five and a quarters or even larger. So not the little three and a half inch discs that we all remember when we were in school and stuff like that. Um, The great thing about this item this year was that When whoever purchased it for me, I know my wife. I got she got it for me for twenty four dollars and ninety seven cents. So sixty four games on the original Commodore sixty four look and feel. Two things: it needs an HDMI plug in, as well as it needs to have a keyboard. But it's one of those. It's very simple to do. Now, why did I ask? I actually asked for the Commodore sixty four, and I asked for it because. If you ever get that feeling of nostalgia when you walk into a shop on vacation and you see something like taffy, and I always think taffy when I was on vacation, or if you go to a Cracker Barrel and when you're standing in the Cracker Barrel, like, oh, cool, we had one of these when we were a kid and it's like a light bright or something like that. The Commodore 64 has that vintage or old-timey fond memory. I didn't actually own one, but a lot of my friends did. And I would come up with new and interesting reasons to why we needed to come over and play on their Commodore 64 because my Apple IIe was a piece of crap. It wasn't a piece of crap, but it didn't have a joystick and do all the fun stuff that the Commodore 64. So if you've ever uh, have ever seen the TV show Adobe Gillis, or if not, there was a guy on it. His name was Maynard P. Krebs. It was the funniest name. And I remember seeing it in an actual, because I started watching that show because I'd watched another show. Because the guy who played Maynard you know, P. Krebs was Bob Denver, who was Gilligan. So I liked Gilligan, and I'm like, hey, Gilligan's on this show. But he always would come over and hang out at the Gillis household and stuff. I became that person, and my friends who had Commodore 64s. I'd bring soda, I'd bring chips, I'd bring, hey, let's get together and go to a movie, and then go back and play Commodore 64. Um, I wasn't great at the games, but it was just seeing the games, and they were so cool. And what's great is that the 64 games they have have a huge list of, you know, fun games that you can play, including my favorites, which are the Olympics games. They had a Summer Olympics, a Winter Olympics, and then they had something kind of like a California Olympics where you could surf and skateboard and stuff like that. They have, you know, RPG games. They had the old good old shoot em, They have racing games all built in this. So if you're looking for something fun and, you know, someone who had a Commodore 64 or has ever talked about it. This is a great idea to get them a version of this. It is fantastic. It's fun. I've played it probably ten hours over the holiday on my on the big TV. It was awesome. Great, great fun. Definitely get it for the price. It will make you uh, make you smile. Plus, if you get the mini, it is really easy to store because it's about the size of a tape deck or maybe like a cassette tape uh, deck when we were Younger. All right. So those are some very nostalgic, cool games. The last game we're going to talk about is Bass Pro Shops, The Strike, for Switch. So this is for all the people who like to fish, and maybe you don't have a pond near you. Or it's where I live in the Pacific Northwest, rainy and not so much fun. And fish really don't bite up here in the rain. It's not as, you know, my kids don't like to go out in it. Um, But, you know, reading off of their website is it's the Champion Edition... It combines authentic environments based on real lakes, engaging gameplay with accurate fish and lures, behaviors that create an immersive fishing adventure. Players can enjoy three different gameplay modes, including quick fish, career, or an invitational tournament, or complete with friends and mini games like boat racing and casting challenges. Players cast, jig, set the hook, and fight as if a real fish were on the other end of the line. The game takes players to some of North America's most famous fishing spots and features 11 types of game fish, including largemouth, smallmouth, catfish, striped bass, as well as northern pike and muskie. In addition, realistic lake bottom topographical advanced graphics and authentic fishing gear from the Bass Pro Shop stores all combine to offer virtual anglers the most comprehensive fishing game experience to date. I'm going to add this on. Without having to see any fish guts, without having to put a worm on a hook, without having to be out in the rain for hours. Um, and when I was a kid, I fished all the time. I maybe fished every single day. Um, and why I like this game is that, you know, my kids, as we try to get closer to get them in the fishing, you know, they've really tried it a couple times. But again, this is something I did every day. I lived near water. We could do it so you know we want to fish some more but this is a fun game that isn't a shoot-em-up this isn't a game that's kind of crazy it's a little more laid back and you know fishing is always fun it's always fun to catch fish in fact they're you know on several shows including the big bang they kind of said hey i'm fishing right here And two people are sitting in the lounge recliners um we have tried all the levels of it we've tried the games that come along with it you it is a ton of fun a lot of playing. And again, how many times have you said, I didn't know if I was going to have so much fun uh, with a fishing game. Well, we've played this almost as much since we've got our Switch, as much as we've when we've played Mario Kart. And we love playing Mario Kart, and we play it all the time. But the fishing game, the kids will actually sit there and fish and chat, and it's almost like we're sitting on the side of a river. So very, very cool, cool thing, uh, the gameplay. <laughs> actually the other neat thing is we've geographically seen where some of the lakes are and we're like, Oh, we can take a trip and go visit that lake. Now, mind you, that's kind of goofy for me, but if you like doing those types of things, that's great. Uh, going to the, you know, going to the lakes, hooray, but again, a little different fishing. It's not, again, like I said, it's not a shoot 'em up game. It's not a racing game. It's not a, a, Mario jumping around game. It's more of, Hey, we're sitting back and we're fishing. Uh Really, those are what we got for Christmas. We had a great time. We played a lot of games. In fact, I think we'll probably be playing a game here in the next 30 minutes. Uh, My kids get home from school. It's kind of something fun to sit down, make a snack, do something like that. Now, I'm not sure what my next topic is that we're going to talk about, but it could be about eSports, which is taking over. It's huge. It's awesome. I actually did watch probably about three or four hours of eSports coverage, um, on tv because it was on and then i actually watched some on uh, both on twitch and then on a, a couple of other places on the internet over the holiday so we're going to either talk about esports or we could be talking about localization and culturalization with a special guest have to make sure i get that guest aligned and showing up but other than that please keep gaming look forward to it and even we're going to get this recorded OrcaCon is coming up this weekend. If you have a board game opportunity in the Pacific Northwest, the Seattle area, go to OrcaCon. should be fun. Uh, Just search OrcaCon. And remember, always, always, always support your local board game, your video game stores. Have a great evening.